welcome to the Record Rangers podcast. I'm Johnny McFarlane and in today's very special pod, myself and the Sunday Mail Scott McDermott sit down with Rangers title winning midfielder Alex Ray. We discuss his first spell at Rangers as an apprentice before the crushing disappointment of being released, a productive spell at Millwall with characters like Mick McCarthy, Teddy Sheringham and the one and only Terry Horlock. How Alex's troubles with alcohol disrupted his career, and how his second chance charity will now be his proudest legacy. And of course, his vivid memories of Helicopter Sunday. Enjoy. So Alec, your Scottish football and Rangers journey started out a lot earlier than in 2004 when you signed for them, because you were there as a youngster. Yeah. What was the process and and, and how did that go? Um, I joined... uh Rangers as a 16 year old effectively just short of 16 and I was an apprentice I was uh, Jock Wallace and uh, Alex Totten were the, were the managers there and uh, they were great um, and the dynamics of being a wee guy who had just left Celtic Boys Club and then got into the dressing room to see guys like David Cooper you know uh, Derek Ferguson Durant were my two and they were my peers that were just slightly older and uh, they were causing carnage uh, all over Glasgow. They were scudding people, <laughs> scudding people with kebabs. Now they were my hero. <laughs> so they were brilliant. You know, they were they, they were good. And uh, just getting that opportunity to be in about, you know, which was the old Albion and and training with guys like Coops on a Friday. You know, just to do shape and things and uh, guys like Derek Johnson, little like icons of the club. And um, it was just a great period to be. I, I, if I'm honest, I struggled I, physically. I wasn't really up to. I was just a wee, maybe nine and a half, ten stone boy. We didn't really have a great deal of physicality. Um, and then Sunas came in, and, and then ultimately it kind of panned out. Um, and I think I think my lifestyle probably had a wee bit of part to play in that as well. Uh, I was more interested in jumping about clubs and nightclubs and things, and um, it didn't do me any favours. Uh, because it was, it was Walter Smith effectively let me go and he says we feel as if you've done okay and football wise however you need to put more of a application into um, whatever you do it was a great piece of advice I, I met Walter when I was 29 and I was relaying this conversation I'm having with you and he, he said to me Alex if you're a plumber an electrician football you've got to put the, the, the spade work in it's okay getting here the hard part staying here he says, and it's like Scott said earlier on, about maybe one step back to go too forward. And within a couple of months, I was back into football with, with Falkirk. So, you know, but it, 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 I look back on it and I wished I had applied myself. Hindsight's a wonderful thing. And I wished I'd applied myself so much better. Um, um, Be devastated at the time. Scott, I was going to chuck it. I was actually going to chuck it. I was... Uh, uh, and, and, and It's interesting when you get uh, people who come into your life. There was a guy called Joe Woods. He was at Bishop Briggs um, amateur team, and he contacted me. How he got my my, my phone number because it was like with a big red phone call, you know, with a dial, like Commissioner Gordon, <laughs> and uh, he got he managed to get the house number, and he said, uh, "Listen, come and play for us. We'll get you back playing." And I was I was more interested again, just to do what I was. I was more interested in going out with my mates and messing about, and thankfully, I went and played with that guy for three months, Bishop Briggs. Because there was one thing about myself is I actually love football. It's evident even when I play now. Um, I'm going to Tenerife this weekend to play. I go to Hong Kong. If somebody asked me to go and play, I actually drove to a t- uh, a, a, a bounce game for charity. 
I, I left at eight o'clock in the morning. Took me three and a half hours to get down to Sunderland. Twelve o'clock kickoff. The guy took me off after an hour, and I jumped back in my car. We came back up the road. It was like a nine <coughs> nine hour round trip. The time I stopped for a cup of coffee to play in a charity game at Sunderland, all in one day. So I, I love the game, and uh, he, this guy Joe Woods, a big Celtic man as well, a big Celtic supporter. And he got me back into football. And so, so if it wouldn't have been for that guy, I have no idea where my career would have went. And uh, I'm indebted to Joe. You talked about your you being a, a small guy. Uh, you physically maybe weren't developed. But you went to Falkirk. Yeah. And you were in with pros. Yeah. And I'm presuming you got kicked all over the place. But yeah. was that the making of you as a player? Well, listen, the, the, it, that was my apprenticeship. It wasn't the two years at Rangers when you're cleaning boots. And that, that gives you the... Cleaning boots, painting the, the, the all around the, st- the stadium at, at Ibrox, brushing, doing divots, all the, the kind of menial stuff in which you do. The actual apprenticeship was from seventeen to twenty. Uh, I was in the, I was in that dressing room. It was a very good dressing room, you know, with guys like Peter Harris and Sammy McGivern, Roddy Manley, you know, um, Big Burgess and all that. So you know, uh, there was a right good nucleus of players and very good players who'd maybe played two, three, four hundred games. And this is going back to the Rangers set up at the moment in terms of I was playing against men, and it's like you said. But I, I had grown up playing against men. I used to play for the Denison boys against the Royston boys. So you had that religious, you know, you're talking about the the dynamics of being at Rangers when we were playing against the, the Royston kids at 15. You know, these guys were 18, 20, and that it was it was violent. It's the only way to describe it. But there was no referee. You just argued whether it was a foul or no, and then you, you, you pick. <laughs> And then you picked, and then you picked yourself back up and thought I'm going to get him back. So so that that playing against the Royston boys, then going in to the Championship. Effectively, there was a period where we got into the Premiership as well, uh, and I was fortunate enough to play at Park Eden things against Paul McStay and that. So that was my apprenticeship. So that three year period at Falkirk then allows you to make a mixed transition to go to the English Championship as it effectively is now, uh, where you're playing with internationals. So that was the leap. Um, and I think, Scott, this is where they're missing a trick. You know, they're playing against their peers in the development league. They're not playing against guys who had put three, four hundred games who just volley at the drop of a hat. So I think that apprenticeship in which I got was an unbelievable grounding to then go and play at the top end of the English Championship. So it was a brilliant uh, learning curve for us. That was at Millwall. Yeah. And you shared a dressing room with some great... Players, Terry Sheringham, yeah, Mick McCarthy. Um, one of the players I want to ask you about because I always remember him from my, my youth is Terry Hurlock. Oh, oh dear, what, what should, tell us a bit about Terry. Are you, are you talking about on the park or off the park? <laughs> <laughs> Terry Hurlock was one of the most fiercest guys on the park you ever have, and, and, and he wasn't a dirty guy. He wouldn't go out to, to hurt you and maim you, and he was a very fair guy, but he was the hardest guy you've ever seen. Um, and he played like that off the park as well. I remember um, he, he, when I went to Millwall, he effectively, two weeks later, went to Rangers. And I remember sitting in the dressing room and Terry says, I'm going to Rangers, son. You know, like that. And I'm going, oh no, because I wanted to go to Rangers. <laughs> Never mind, you know. So he came back about 1993 4 season. And just to give you a picture of Terry Hullock, he used to be like the old East End gangster. It was the height of the summer and pre-season. Terry's got the overcoat. 
he's got the Rangers skip car and he's got the big perm and the broken nose and all that, right? And he's come into training. And we used to go for a, a refreshment after training and things with Terry. And it's the only time, and, and this is to kind of, you know when you talk about a dressing room dynamics that most players miss. Terry Hullock got released at the end of that season. I think it was 93, 94 season. He got released and we were sitting in a little watering hole along the road called the Beehive, which was... Uh, where all the players convened after training most days. And um, Terry walked in and he's went, that effing so-and-so, uh, Mick McCarthy's let me go. And everyone started banging the table. Yes! Because we used to blame him for taking us out for, for three-day benders. <laughs> but he, 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 see, whenever I speak about Terry Hurlock, and you can tell about it now, I actually speak of him fondly. Whenever I see Terry, he will give you a bear hug and he'll punch you in the ribs, and it's a way of him showing affection. That's the way the old East End uh, Londoners did it. I can't speak about the guy highly enough. I love playing with him because, he, he look, again, he was one of the guys that would look after you. Uh, I remember a time we were playing against Leicester, and it was a mass brawl, <laughs> and Terry was in the middle of it, and, and he got sent off. But he was one of the guys that you had in your, in your corner, and uh, he was great, but uh, talking about great players, uh, sharing them, people often say, in your career, what was one of your better uh, guys that he played against Sheringham was phenomenal he scored 38 league goals league and cup goals the year that I played with McMillwall and uh, he must have set up about maybe a half a dozen seven assists for myself alone so the actual contribution in which he brought to Millwall that season was, was, was phenomenal and he and it's I'm talking about I, I got taught at the championship in Scotland about the physicality about mixing it with men when I went to play with guys with Teddy, I then had started to understand about the technical side of the game, you know, in terms of how to play. Teddy wasn't blessed with pace. He was ahead of his time in that. Scott, drop, Scott he was phenomenal. Front, it was great, and, and, and it was it was just, we, we, as you said, with some really good players, with a lot of internationals. I, I had a good partnership with a guy called Gary Waddock, and then young Andy Roberts came after him. So you did internationals, uh, and then young Andy went for a couple of million pounds. So playing against Millwall had a really good balance, they had a lot of good kids and they had good senior players so uh, it was a very eventful time in my career uh, I, I managed to do three um, um, three out of the six I was top goal scorer at Millwall from the centre of uh, the park You know, I was getting 13, 16 goals and things so it was a brilliant uh, why, why were you not getting talked about for Scotland at that time? Up to be honest with Scott, I, uh, I had a wee run in with Craig yeah. uh, when I was at the under 21s and Craig Brown. Yeah, Craig Brown, yeah. And um, it never, it probably hampered me in some ways. Yeah. You know, um, I think if you take it without jumping too far ahead, um, I kind of get into some B internationals and things. Don't get me wrong, at that period you had guys like Lambert, Stuart McCall, Gary McAllister, you know, there were some yeah. really top midfielders. We were quite blessed in that respect. McStay was still around at yeah, that Yeah, yeah, he would have been, yeah. But, um, if you want to jump forward a couple of years ago, I was playing mm-hmm. with Sunderland and we were third, uh, third in yeah, the Premiership really. at Christmas. You know, back to back years we were third, yeah. and you weren't even getting in a squad. Yeah. And then I kind of look at what's going on currently, and then we wonder why we're no kind of where we are. But anyway, but no, but Millwall was great. Um, I, I loved it. I, to be honest with you, I, I would love to have left Millwall earlier because they were a selling club. And I was determined to actually have a go in the Premiership, but it never came for until. And I think that was partly due to my off-field uh, antics. I was causing a wee bit of trouble. 
you mentioned the, the goals that you scored and actually I looked at some of your stats your, your stats are actually incredible I managed to get about 70 odd goals with Millwall in that 6 years which averages over 10 a season and if you think about that you know in current marketplace you'd be you'd be a multi-millionaire um, and, and again it was partly off the off-field off things um, but I was grateful to Peter Reid because they came in and paid a good transfer fee at the time and it gave me the opportunity to then go and try my, my luck at the, the level up uh, did you did you notice an immediate an obvious jump a huge jump? Yeah, well, listen. See, the thing is, I, I have to say the 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 first eighteen months or so uh, at Sunderland was a was a whitewash for me. It was a poor period of my life, and and um, I never really played it a lot. So, in terms of on the on field antics, um, I didn't. It wasn't a period that I looked back favourably, and. As I said, the hindsight's a great thing. When I when I was looking, and this is no disrespect to the guys that were playing there, Paul Bracewell and Kevin Ball were very very good footballers. If you go to '98, uh, once I managed to kind of pull myself together and get my life back in order, my career just went to another level. I mean, to to a proper what what I should have been doing for the whole yeah. eight years I'd been in England, um, and that's obviously something you look back and thought. If I had my time again, I would most certainly have done it differently. Could you have done with somebody to get a hold of you? No, Scott, I wasn't, I wasn't interested. No. That's the thing. And this is the thing about, we spoke about this during that pre, that last wee break. When I went to London in 90, 1990, there was a boy indoors. In the first six months of Millwall, there was a couple of instances where, you know, um, they could quite easily send me back up the road. Yeah. And Bruce Root, Intimated that they were going to do that unless I got out of London, so I ended up moving out to Kent. Um, and I'm not sure Kent was quite ready for us. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, Ian Dawes said to me, he says, Listen, and, and, and see, in 1990, see, when you got to 30, 31, 32, you were petering down. That was the kind of the landscape at that yeah. time because, because of the foreign influx, it gave people an extra five or six years. Yeah. And he was saying to me, listen, 10 years will be over and done in 10 years. And I remember thinking to myself, that's because he's 29, 30, he's finished, he's on the way out. He's trying to curtail my happiness in London. <laughs> but he was so right. And, and what I'm saying to you is people had given me advice along the way yeah. and it was just a case that it might be okay for you. And you always feel as if when you're young, you know better. And it's only through learning for your own mistakes that you actually realise that these guys were right. Have you been in dressing rooms over the years where you've helped other players, you've seen issues and thought, yeah. I see myself in that Yeah, lad. absolutely. Well, listen, I, I, we were talking about uh, issues in terms of discipline. N- never mind the off-the-field things. I was getting sent off when I was 29, 30. I was telling you a story about David Ginola there. And I went and um, sought uh, professional help. It was a neuro-linguistic programme and he worked in the Priory in London. And I went and done a wee couple of days' work with this guy. It gave me an unbelievable insight and depth of my behaviour because I, I, I was 29 couldn't quite grasp uh, how I was still causing myself problems on the pitch and didn't have an understanding of uh, ego about fear and things so I, I, I kind of I, I was there that you, you just touched upon Scott that people gave you advice at that point I was like a sponge for this stuff mm-hmm. and I was just absorbing it all and I had a decent understanding it's okay getting advice but what you do is then the important thing and from getting that advice it wasn't even advice, it was getting a self, uh, self-awareness self of how you were behaving and getting an understanding of it. You can then do something about that. 
because it's okay getting advice, but if you do, it's just information. If you don't yeah. do anything about it, then it's so. What I'm saying is, when I look at somebody like Ryan Jack, constantly getting up and you know, puffing out his chest and things, the actual clever thing is to walk away. But it's actually kind of getting that understanding at that time because you don't want to be bound down in front, and it's about perception. You don't want to kind of be seen to be losing face, but you can still have that persona and have it all under control. Because I've done it. I just told you a story about Henri Kamara and you know, and, and not getting booked and being in the middle of it all, but having that control and that understanding of your behaviour. So I think there's, I think there's lots of things that you start picking up along the way as as an adult and growing and that and and it only comes from your own experience. It doesn't come from anyone else's. And you've obviously been involved with the charity Second Chance. Yeah, yeah. Is that something that you're still actively involved with? Very much so. We uh, we had a wee. Um, uh, five aside tournament a couple of weeks ago and we raised several thousand pounds for that um, football is my whole life I, it, it, to the, you know, I, I speak to my good pal Davy Farrow who's a taxi driver and eight, ten times a day football it's all football based uh, look at what he said look what he, she's you know just total football and uh, I remember I had a, a good pal George an elderly guy now George would be in his 70s and I took him up to one of my last games at Dundee and he says, listen Alex, he says, because once you're in football, it's all all consuming and I was telling him how much I was struggling because we just missed out in promotion and how much I wanted to uh, to win that league. And some I felt as if some of the players didn't have the same kind of determination or drive. Uh, and it's okay, you know, you've got to take these, you've got to take everybody at their own. I don't know if they wanted it as much as me, one or two. And he says, listen, Alex, I says, I get all this football thing. He says, your legacy in life, and he says, and he was looking at me square in the eyes, we're having a coffee in Borders uh, at Starbucks. And he says, your legacy, you'll look back in years. He says, I've got the benefit, and we're talking about experiences here. He says, you'll look back in 20, 30 years down the line if your charity Second Chance is still going. Now, we've helped over 400 people who are chronic alcoholics or drug addicts. I'm not quite sure of the up-to-date figures, but the last one I heard was just over 400. The numbers for one individual affects directly or indirectly 50 to 70 people. So you think about someone, say a father. So then it helps his kids, it helps his siblings, you know, his sister, his brother, his mother, his father. Then you've got the police issue, you've got the hospital issue, you've got the prison issue, the the thieving or not thieving. Then you're re- focusing your energy into being a responsible taxpayer. So the actual ripple effect is phenomenal. And George says to me, you'll look back in your life as that will be your legacy. So, but the thing is, and it does, it has a profound effect on people's lives. And that's the reason why we continue to fight so hard to keep the doors open because of the, 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 the landscape, you know, having to cut back and all the, the council stuff, the health board and... And we've been fighting f- from the, the day we started it to now to actually get it up and running. I don't know how much you've spoken about it in the past, but when when was the point where you sought, sought help and, and realised... Oh, do you know what, Scott? Do you know the thing is, it was no different to any other weekend. Mm. No different. I hadn't drank any more that weekend or anything less. And uh, it was just... I'd actually tried to search for some help in 1994. And the lady said to me after a couple of weeks, I'd managed to stay half the booze and that. I felt, but the thing is, because I was a binge drinker and I was physically fit, 
you could always justify it. I was scoring, you know, top goal yeah. scorer and playing in the Premiership, and and you can always justify it. So '94, I went to see this lady, and she and, and, and again we I spoke about fear. You know, this is not something that the guys for the East End of Glasgow speak a lot about. She said to me after two weeks, "I can't do any more for you, mate. You need to go into residential." Automatically, with it. she said that, I went, "Thanks for your help." Out the door, <coughs> and I was thinking to myself that if I go into residential, they might sack me. Yeah. What will people think about me? Yeah. You know, all the things. It's about, and again, it's perception. Yeah. Um, asking for help is, and this is the thing about mental health. It's, it's obviously a big topic these days. But you're talking about twenty odd years ago. Mm-hmm. People wanted to forthcoming and going. I'm in bits here, I need help. So that so it took me another four years to ninety eight to actually go, enough's enough. And my life was crumbling at every aspect of my life financially. I was having problem indoors, football professionally. So every every facet of it and mentally I was just in bits. So it was the best thing I've ever done. Uh it gave me a bit of clarity and all the things in which I'm telling you there started to flourish in the house um, football financially is. football professionally and that's what I'm saying so from 29 my career went through the roof I wanted to ask you about win bonuses because I heard when you were at Sunderland that your win bonus was 5 grand a game when we were uh, we got promoted from the championship we had a, a like a the club captain was Kevin Ball Kevin Ball was um Mr Sunderland he's still there he's an ambassador he's yeah. managed the club uh, a couple of times as well and uh, he done all, all our negotiations with Bob Murray who was the chairman so um, we came into training one day and we were all kind of getting the season was starting within a couple of weeks and we're thinking right we need to get this bonus structure sorted and Niall Quinn wasn't in the dressing room so we were like where's Big Quinny and it turns out that Quinny had actually gone to negotiate with the chairman now the only way to describe Kevin Ball is maybe about 5'11 6 feet built like a brick outhouse and he was stomping up and down this porter cabin it was porter cabins now think about this English premiership getting changed in porter cabins he's stomping up and down the place he's going I'm the <laughs> captain of this club I should be up there getting this bonus we should be tag teaming this chairman we should be up there I'm thinking myself oh my god just oh, I say see if that door opens and Big Quinny doesn't get the right money Bolly's going to letter him right this is a true story right so the next minute, Big Quinny balls in, but he walks in, he goes, it's no good, boys. Bolly jumped up and he's banging the table. He's like, I have f- told you, I have been up there, I told you, right? So I'm like, oh, this could go anyway here. So he went, right, sit down there, tell you what the dynamics of it all are, right? So he sits there and he says, well, listen, the chairman's agreed on five grand a win. You could have heard a pin drop. Because <laughs> we were thinking maybe about 800, 1200 quid. You know, a year ago as well. Oh no, this is going back to uh, this is going back to '98. So the best part of twenty years. Um, so, and I'm being honest here. The actual five grand a win was more than my salary, right? So, it was a masterstroke by Bob, the chairman, and Niall Quinn. I'll tell you the reason being is the five grand. So what happened was two and a half grand went directly into your bank account for the win. Two and a half was getting held back by the club. And if we get relegated, if we get relegated, they were choking it. So it was effectively two and a half a win. Right? With 36 points at Christmas, we were kicking everything that moved, Johnny. I mean, everything that moved. But this is the thing. And this is, you talk about 
incentives. And no, 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 well, there is incentives. But so you're saying to me, you can get more money winning a game of football than you know. And I'm don't forget, I'm trying to get my life back in order for all the years of carry on. But this is what it actually turned out to be a masterstroke by Quinny and everyone at the club. We had five staff at the time, right? So I mean, backroom staff. You had a masseur, you had a physio. You had the reserve team coach, you had Ricky, and you had, I'm trying to think who the last one was. So there's five guys in the background who are making a contribution to the first team, right? And every time you won a game, Johnny, you took 200 quid in the Monday morning and you put it into a fund. So there's 20 players, there's four grand, effectively getting carved up, going back to the masseur, the kit man. So they're making more money. So much so that the masseur was rubbing the hairs off your leg, Johnny, <laughs> to get you fit. <laughs> but what I'm saying is you had a structure from the chairman right down to the kit man where everybody's objective is to win yeah. and everybody's focused on winning games. It benefits everyone. It benefits everyone. So everybody knew, all being that money was the kind of catalyst there. Whereas if you look at my old team now, Sunderland, they're all on 20, 30, 40 grand a week now and they're bottom of the championship yeah. because they've all got there so there's no incentive there's no unity they're all blaming each other they're all looking at each other and there's no uh, team unity and no, no common cause basically absolutely and they're disconnected with the fans now see that time with the, with the, the time that, that team as well were very uh, very much a unit and that reflected in what goes on with the club as well. And that's the reason why I always said that I felt as if Sunderland needed a British manager. You get these foreigners coming in and they do not understand the working class environment in which you are, uh, the North East is. What about in respect to, you're in a big game, it's a 1-1 draw, there's a last minute penalty, you've got five grand on the line. I mean... Oh, to be honest with you, see, I've got to be perfectly honest with you, see, see that, Johnny, at no stage when you were in a game going... It's about the money. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? The, the, the money was like a byproduct, and it created a good environment, and everybody was trying at, at their best. Uh, There's no pressure on, say, a defensive mistake. You're like, that cost me five grand up. No, no, there was nothing. There was yeah. never anything like that. And and it's the the actual see the first two years of this kind of structure. Sunderland finished seventh twice in the top flight of English football. At that time, it had never been done. I think it was 50 odd years now that would have been the best part of 15 years ago so we're looking at that was the best back to back finishes in about 65 years for Sunderland so when I go back to the North East and I tell that story about you know the, the, the wind bonus they love it you know you're doing re-question and answers and things and people can connect with the whole ethos the whole working ethic of that because see for that team who were both these seasons they were favourites to go down to actually do what we did and if, if anything, if they'd have thrown a wee bit more resources at it, they potentially could have got to Europe, but they never invested in the manner in which they could have done. Um, and then they, they, um, that team started to slowly but surely uh, you know, disintegrate, and then obviously the rest is history. They get relegated a couple of years later. You got your move to Wolves, and in your final season at Wolves, you had a fantastic season of Premiership, got eight goals... You talked earlier about journalists and um, how they can be tough, but a journalist got you a move to Rangers. That's right, yeah. What yeah, happened? That was, uh, I was doing a, a piece. I had a beautiful farm 
you know, it's interesting because you get a guy for the East End of Glasgow, <laughs> and, and, and I actually bought the oldest house in Wolverhampton. It was fifteen ten, and it was the farmhouse, and it, it was on the common, just in the about three miles from the town centre. And I lasted about a year there, uh, and at that time I was doing a wee bit of developing with property, and we always wanted that you know this grand designs me and the missus there was a big barn come up for grabs and we thought we'll go and buy that we'll go and buy that it was an auction and there was a wall in between the, so you have this barn which is derelict it's just got the, the, the tractor in there a massive a massive Ferguson tractor and then you have the farmhouse but so I took a wee look up and the farmhouse now don't forget I've got a house my missus said to me I want this house I thought, we've only bought a house a year ago, what, what, are you, what are you on about? So we actually went to buy the, the stables and it went for mental money. I mean, ridiculous money. And so she says, I want the farmhouse. I'm thinking, this lassie's lost the plot here, right? <laughs> so we went and bought this farmhouse. But the farmhouse had five and a half acres of land, Scott. You know, think about the wee close in the tenement and you'll get five and a half acres. It's like five and a half football pitches. And it was mature uh, gardens. And it had all these, it, it was an ex-Spitfire pilot who had it. And uh, it, it served in the war and it was a POW. And the garden was pristine, so much so that they opened it to the public for a month. I didn't know this. And they used to give charge two pounds because it was all these rare plants. And I remember saying uh, Tony Gubber from the BBC wanted to uh, do an interview. I says... Tell me, come up to the farm. Pizza <laughs> <laughs> when it turns up, and he went, "Oh, this is unbelievable, right?" And, it, and it's not something you know you wouldn't expect for a normal. F- and, and and I actually used to cut the grass myself. I had a big tractor with the gang mowers on the back and cutting it, and the, you know, like a proper farmer. And anyway, he said we did the interview, and he says, "Listen, you're in the, the twilight of your career, and you've got eight goals." And this was just at Christmas, so it was like half the season, you know. And I was, I was flying. And he said to me, he says, he says which, afterwards, he says, what's your passion by? I forgot to ask you that. I said, listen, I like a wee bit of golf uh, with Paul Ince and, uh, and, uh, and I, I like to watch the Rangers. And he says, I'm meeting Alex McLeish tomorrow. I says, will you tell Big Red I'm available for nothing in the summer? And from that, I ended up getting into Rangers and, you know, you just couldn't make it up. What was the feeling getting that move when you signed that contract? Because obviously, you'd been there as a lad, you'd yeah. been let go. Yeah. Was it the... The culmination of your career, in a way. Listen, you, you see circumstances and how it all panned out. Seeing the second of January prior to joining Rangers, just before I did that interview, maybe a week or two before that, Blackburn put a bid in for me the day after we played them, um, and the manager was Graham Souness, effectively the guy that let me go. So he's trying to re-sign me, seventeen years down the, lo- the line, for getting kicked out of Rangers at Blackburn. And they were, they were paying some good money at the time with, with York and Cole and things. And Wolves wouldn't let me go. So, But I was grateful that it didn't materialise purely for the point of view as I managed to come back up to Rangers at 34. And you're thinking, you couldn't make this up. Had you, get, had you given up hope for that? I mean, was there any part oh, Scott, of your mind thought I might well, get well, back Do you know the interesting thing about it, Scott, is I went to see them in 2003-04 at Manchester. And... Uh, I don't know if you ever remember this. At the time, the Premiership had gone for 2003, about 12 years or so. And I was playing for uh, Wolves against Leicester. And we were 3-0. I used to write a little column for the Express and Star. The big newspaper. The proper newspaper. (laughs) And uh, I used to write a wee column. And uh, it was always about Rangers. 
and uh, I went to uh, we were three 0 down at half time. We came back and won four uh, three against Leicester, but at half time the stadium pretty much halved, and I was I was writing my wee column saying I'm disappointed that the fans had left because it, they would have witnessed the best comeback in the Premier League history at that time. No one had come back for three and won a game. It was it was an unbelievable game of football. Anyway, in the Champions League, I don't know if you remember that, at 3-0 down at Old Trafford, Rangers were playing, and I bolted after an hour. <laughs> <laughs> but my point is, I remember thinking, I could go and play for Rangers. You know, they, were, they get absolutely terrorised. Now I've been playing against Man United. We beat Man United that season. So I knew within myself, I felt as if I could still do Rangers a turn, but you think you've missed the boat, Scott. Yeah. But anyway, that was uh, uh, so to, to come back up and, and play at 34. And how, how did you feel when you got the call? I mean, was it, were you back to being a 16, 17 year old? No, oh, no, 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 it was, it was nothing like that. It was just the thought of coming back up and getting an opportunity. Because, listen, regardless what some people say, and journalists that, you know, the strong Rangers and things recently, um, there's something magical about the games. You know, there's a worldwide perception it's one of the best, hence the reason why you need a strong Rangers. And uh, to play in one of the games, I was... Because the thing is, I used to travel from Millwall, which is London, to, to see these games. I used to travel for Sunderland, for Wolves, and come back to the Old Firm games. So to play in one of them was just... And, but what I'm saying here about learning... Um, you're, you're the biggest dud in the city to be in the king of the castle. And that's the, that is the kind of barometer where you're, you're scared to catch people now. I mean, you've lost a defeat to the, you know, the old firm. You're walking about and you, you've let the family down, you've let the supporters down. And then adversely, you're walking about as if you're the king of the castle, walking about, you know. Um, and, it, and, you know, that's what actually st- strives on to actually win these games. Did you, did you ever try and say to folk, like, say, Paulins, for instance, I've been there, done it. Yep. The game the time you got to to Wolves, been at Milan, Man yep. United. Did you find yourself trying to explain to him what the old firm was like? Why well, you this well, person do you know, for Rangers? Do you know that Paulins nearly signed for uh, nearly signed when he came back for Inter? That signed for it. Rangers, aye. He nearly signed for him, and, and and I was in his house one day. Um, I was in his house. He's got a nice wee place in Cheshire. And I was walking along the corridor and he was stood with a Celtic top on. He played, I think, for Liverpool and he played in a friendly and he stood with a Celtic top. I mean, you'd never get playing for Rangers without that one, mate. <laughs> but no, but the, that, that, that is the thing. The perception is, when I was when I used to come up to the games, I used to see all the Premier League players who that were attending the games because of the magnitude, the rivalry and, and, and the panache that it brought. We have to ask you about Helicopter Sunday. I'm yeah. sure you never get sick of talking about it. <laughs> Going into the last four games, I think it was five points yes. behind Celtic. Yeah. Did you believe that it could be done? Well, let me tell you, Johnny, this is a true story. Big guy like McLeish nearly cost us a league that year. I'm serious, he nearly cost us a league. Uh, if you if you just take it from the split, the we played Celtic the first game at Ibrox. Was it 2-1, Scott? I think they, yeah. they Celtic beat us. Yeah. But just to tell the, the listeners there, at two o'clock, the door opens, and that, this is the, the, the year inside the dressing room. And Andy Watson usually comes in and goes, "So and so, so and so, the gaffer wants you." What ultimately meant that um, you were a sub. Everybody knew it, but he, to be fair to Alex, this is a man management. He always gave you your place. 
and I was one of the guys with a sub a day. So by him dropping me that day, nearly cost us the league, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, Big Alex seen sense and reinstated me up at Aberdeen. Um, so no, but to, to answer your question, straight after that, you talk about momentum and things, and I think the only guy in the whole of Scotland was Big Marvin, who was a guy, keep believing, brother, <laughs> you know, keep believing. And, and, and I'm led to believe that Marvin and Pastor Joe uh, made 800 grand out of t-shirts up in five with keep believe keep, <laughs> keep believing t-shirts so but see 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 that that the the lead up to that Sunday everyone has a their own individual story who was involved in that as a player whether it's a supporter or got a ticket at the last minute or whatever it may well be my missus um, about eight days before Sehan says you're going to be a nightmare you're going to be a nightmare. If you lose that, you'll be a nightmare. You're going to be unbearable. And I says, I need butter. She says, I'm going to go on holiday. And I says, fill your boots. I'm, I'm happy to go with that. And uh, so anyway, leading up three or four days to go, I said, where, where are you going, by the way? She went, New York. And I went, wow, liberty. She's absolutely taking a liberty <laughs> with me here. <laughs> so she's flying out to New York, right? And I'm thinking, here we go. So we're playing the game. Um... And then obviously Barry's jumping on my shoulder when we've even won the, we've even won this, and and I had visions of Marvin miscontrolling it because I played seven hundred games, give or take subs and first team appearances, and I had visions of Marvin miscontrolling just you know because I played playoff false alarms with Millwall and Sunderland and Wolves, and I had visions. So anyway, we won the league, and this is this is a, this is gospel this story. So we we get ushered into the dressing room, and you've seen some of the footage with Dado and Shorter all dancing. And this is this is my recollection of it all. Um, I broke down crying, and when I say crying, it was unconsolable stuff. And I remember thinking to myself, for the East End, we go to funerals and we don't cry, you know, like <laughs> you're wearing it on your sleeve and you don't cry. So I, I go outside the dressing room, and I've got my phone, and I go down. I'm knackered. I go down in my hunkers, and, and I'm emotional, and I mean, I, I mean, gone. So I, I manages to get hold of my. Um, Missies, and and I, I I just said to Johnny I'd never been to New York until February there, but I can hear music in the background, and it turns out she's in Bloomingdale's. Now Bloomingdale's is the size of this this building. It's massive, apart you know you know it's, it's, it's and she's gone. I can't hear you. I went, oh, everyone the league, oh, what the f- <laughs> right? So she but she says, hold on, I can't hear you because there's music piping through the store. So she goes to, she says, let me get to the stairwell. And I'm thought, she said, oh, I should have been there. You know, I've been, I met my wife at school. And it was a moment she'd followed us all over England. I mean, home and away in Millwall, she used to go to games. And she said, I should have been there. And all of a sudden, I hear her going, what's that, Mick? And I'm thinking to myself, Mick, who's she with? <laughs> <laughs> so I hear this conversation with my wife and a guy called Mick. And it so and it goes and she goes, I Alex just won the league with Rangers, and in a big Yorkshire accent he went, don't f- tell me that, or I'll start greeting. It was Mick McCarthy and his wife Fiona, <laughs> right? So you couldn't make up, and then he went, tell him, I'm delighted that he's actually won it because he'd obviously seen the the darker sides of things as well, and that was my kind of recollection of the whole of the, the helicopter Sunday thing. It was just he'd have known what it meant. A- absolutely, of course he did. I mean, the thing is, and by the way, I've had Mick McCarthy grab me with the throat. 
came back to the League Cup final 1991 season. I turned up late with Teddy Sheringham to training, and Big Mike was at the game and he grabbed me with the throat and threw me in the dressing room because I was, you know, holding up training. So he knew how much Rangers meant to me. And, but see, directly after that, because I'd been playing in England for 14 years, and when I was a kid, I never really got to see Rangers as much as I would like to because I would always play in Saturdays and Sundays in the days. I never was privy to going round Ibrooks walking round mm. and seeing the fans. There was 40-odd thousand there, you know, the time we get back through the Fenbrough. Again, I was an emotional wreck. And it was just the whole emotion of actually winning the league and the manner in which we'd done it. And having an understanding it because I wouldn't have probably played as much the following year. Barry was back in town and, uh, you know, freshening things up uh, and being aware of, I was kind of getting towards the end of my career as well at that level. So the whole thing was was just remarkable. Uh, the dynamics coming back after all the years and managing to win the double in your first year, it was just, you just couldn't write the stuff. Did you ever speak to Scott McDonald? Well, it's interesting. I've done a wee, I've done a wee bit with Scott in the media recently, and he, he says that he, uh, you know, uh, he, he, he didn't feel as if the celebrations it was thing. I, I, I remember his celebrations. I think he was actually enjoying <laughs> um, his celebrations. But um, listen, I actually went and spent some time directly after the game. Some people had helped me over the years as well. Uh, and, and I think I'm led to believe that the, 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 the Rangers hierarchy brought in loads of McDonald's to, to obviously Scott McDonald but uh, but it, it was a great um, it was just an unbelievable night um, how long have we got here because there, there was a guy abusing me for about five weeks leading up to the game at my, my daughter's nursery and I mean seriously abused me at the nursery every day with verbals and all sorts. Serious? Or, or I mean serious. Yeah. No, no, initially it started off really serious. And uh, over the course of the next, as you said, the following weekend, because he was, it, it was exchanging a few words. Yeah, where it was borderline mental stuff, right? <laughs> How I was going to involve with this guy. And then the following day after Helicopter Sunday, I had the... the, the because I trust my daughter, uh, I was still going to the nursery in the Monday morning. I took her to the nursery, and I had the I had the Bank of Scotland, and I was like, "Get that hold, doggy." <laughs> <laughs> but to be fair to the guy, by that time, the f- after four or five weeks, initially it was a bit lively. It was more of you know a bit of banter, more so towards the end. And he went, "Aye, fair play," you know. So it actually turned out all right in the end. What's it done for your status among Rangers fans? Just being part of that. That. Part of that day, well, listen. See the see the see in terms of title races, and and this is what makes me laugh. I'm led to believe. See me. I always think we need a strong Rangers and Celtic because if you're trying to sell a product, it needs to be a competition. Your league is defined by the competition in which you have. Not at the bottom, but at the top of the league. And that was what I was saying a couple of weeks ago, where it defines, and things like that only enhance. So when you look. Whenever you mention to someone about Helicopter Sunday, it's up there in one of the most fantastic finales to yeah. any season because because of the nature of it all. Pure drama. Absolutely. And uh, I remember uh, a couple of years previous, I was sharing a room with Mo Kamara, who ended up playing for Celtic. And he couldn't, again, if you you don't know about the Rangers Celtic thing, you can't quite grasp what it's all about. And I remember, because we were, we were playing the Sunday, we were in the playoffs, and I was walking about the dressing room and I kept phoning my father uh, to see how we were getting on. And 
he was going, ah, we've scored. Oh, they've scored. Celtic's just scored. That's the end. They're in the lead and, and, and the drama, the whole thing. And I was walking about in my boxer shorts. And, and then Mo and his friends, Alex, you're crazy, you're crazy. He said, look at you, it's only football, Mickey Mouse football. <laughs> and then he comes up the road a couple of years later. And then, he, and then he wins it. He wins the title in my second season. Uh, and then I said to him, do you remember that time I'm walking about the room, about the size? And he went, yes, now I know what it's all about. And that's until you're actually in that environment, you can't comprehend what it actually entails. Alex, it's been fascinating. Thank you very much. Cheers. Yeah!